Well, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Nick Kamiski. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's good to be with you. As Peter mentioned, uh, and as Andrew mentioned, today is the day of Pentecost, celebration of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Pentecost uh, tradition predates the Christian faith. It was celebrated in Judaism uh, 50 days, or 49 days, excuse me, after the Feast of Passover. That's what Pentecost means, the 50th, 50th day. And in the Jewish tradition, it celebrates, among other things, the giving of God's law. But now, I like to think of Pentecost as, as an historic demarcation. There was a way or an experience of, of worshiping God, of serving God, of discovering oneself in relationship to God that existed before Pentecost. And there's an experience of worshiping God and serving God and finding oneself in relationship to God afterwards. Acts 2 describes what happened. It's an avalanche of the divine presence in perplexing, unexpected ways. But I want to reflect this morning on Romans chapter 8. Rather than the event itself, Paul explores one of Pentecost's most profound consequences. He tells us that the same Spirit which came from heaven like a mighty rushing wind, the same Spirit which divided like tongues of fire to rest on each of the disciples, that same Spirit lives in us. On to what end? To confer an identity. We have received the spirit of adoption, Paul says. And through it, we know God as Father. In the mid-2000s, the New York Times published an article about uh, a sociological study at the University of Alberta in Canada. And it looked at how parents treated their kids while at the supermarket. They observed things like, did they belt their kids into the grocery cart seats? Did they let their kids wander down the aisles? Did their attention lapse while doing so? Did they let their kids stand up in the carts and risk breaking their neck? And maybe most controversially, they, they rated each child's attractiveness on a 10-point scale. What they found, uh, and I'm sure this is only true of Canada, is that good-looking children receive better care than, let's say, the more homely ones. Moms were nine times more likely to use seatbelts and grocery carts with attractive children. Dads were 13 times more likely. Happy Father's Day. Is that, that's next weekend, yeah. Uh, you know, this is obviously just one study, but it, it does point to something more universal. There's a professor at UT, an economics professor named Daniel Hammermesh, I think, and he looks at this, and he's determined that attractive people earn an average of three to four more percent than people with below average 
looks. This is kind of the way of the world. But what I want to say is that this, is, this trend does not carry into our relationship with God. You know, there's no preferential treatment on physical or, or spiritual or ethical beauty. In Jesus Christ, we are all dear children. And I want to say, this is maybe the most important truth about us. We're disciples of Jesus. We're servants of God, of course. But we are, those things are almost exterior to us in, in, in contrast to being dear children. We're, we mean more to God than we could ever know. We're more welcome than we could ever believe to take God our Father at his word and, and lean upon his heart and tell him all. And so what I want to do today is just spend some time in this passage from Romans 8 and reflect on three of the connections that Paul makes between the spirit of adoption and our everyday life. I want to connect the spirit and action, the spirit and feeling, and the spirit and suffering. First, though, kind of a relevant, I hope, digression of sorts. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Should we use more gender-inclusive language? It's 2019. That was, that was my initial instinct. But then I came across an article by Jamie Lancaster Patterson. She's a New Testament professor at, uh, here in Austin at the Episcopal Seminary for the Southwest. And here's what she says. As a woman, I understand and appreciate the rationale of gender inclusion. As someone concerned with Christian moral practice, I lament the infantilizing of Christians as children without the responsibilities of adult members of the household of God. It's pretty strong language. What does she mean? I think it has to do with the role of sons and the practice of adoption in the Greco-Roman world. And let's start with the latter, the practice of adoption. Parents in that era did not adopt children to experience the love and the joy of parenting. They adopted to procure an heir to ensure that the work and wealth and name of a family would endure. And because men were only understood to have the agency and responsibility necessary to do so, only men were adopted. In fact, the word for adoption in our text could be literally translated son-making. Women, by contrast, were limited legally to a status that's essentially like we would think of as teenagers. But Paul says here that men and women are all sons of God. Elsewhere in Galatians, he said, there's neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I think that, at least in this instance, Paul's not reflecting or upholding patriarchal values. I think he's subverting them. He's saying that God has placed a high and noble call on humankind to partner with him in the work that he does in the world. And this call 
is not something for men to do and for women to support. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Men and women are equally commissioned, commanded, and equipped to do this work. Okay, digression over. Action. What does the Spirit lead us and inspire us to do? So I want to I look at some of the details in this passage, and I, I fear it's going to require a little bit of attention, but I think it will be worth it because it will help you feel the force of Paul's argument. So just pay attention for like three minutes, and then I'll make a funny pop culture reference. Okay. Look, let's look how verse 14 begins, all right? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, you all graduated from middle school. That preposition, for, what's it doing? It's offering the grounds or the basis for the claim in verse 13. So I'm going to cheat on the lectionary, and I'm going to read verse 13 right now. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh or according to your, your base, your sinful nature, then you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. It's kill or be killed, Paul's saying. Put to death the sin that characterizes your life or that sin will kill you. Now let's connect the second half of verse 13 with verse 14. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. For all who are so led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul restates, in other words, putting to death the misdeeds of your body with this idea of being led by the Spirit. Now, why does this matter? Because I want to get at this question of being led by the Spirit. What is it? How does the Spirit lead us? What does the Spirit lead us to do? I think Paul wants to say the Spirit leads us to go to war against the patterns of sin in our life. The Spirit empowers us to put to death the misdeeds of our body. The Spirit rehabilitates us by giving us new desires and motivations. And this is our great privilege as the children of God. This is the evidence of God's Spirit at work in our lives. You might not be particularly successful, but the drive, the desire is there. And that is God's gift to you. You could say that in a word, Paul is highlighting our agency in the Christian life. What we are now able to do because of God's work in us. And I think that's a profound affirmation because of what Paul says elsewhere in Romans about the reality and power of sin. In Paul's mind, human beings are not autonomous moral actors who choose or don't choose what's good and true and beautiful. In Paul's world, we are not alone. We are in the lethal company of capital S sin, an almost personal 
mythologized power that enslaves us, that holds us captive. In fact, that is the metaphor Paul uses, slavery. We are in a prison that's locked from the outside and without a word outside of us that liberates us, that breaks our bonds, we are helpless. And, you know, thanks be to God, that's what the gospel is all about. It's this, this word that sets us free. But what Paul is highlighting here is that in the train of Christ's victory, we are enabled and empowered and inspired to cement the freedom that God makes possible in our lives, to fully possess that which God has given us. There's a, there's a connection, in other words, between the Spirit of God and graced, uncomplicated morality. And there are times, of course, to affirm how tragic and complex life is. And there are times to assuage the guilty and absolve those of us who struggle in our sin. Peter did that like four minutes ago. But there are also times on the basis of God's word to say that the Holy Spirit is present in our lives in such a way that real growth and real change is possible. That locked doors can be opened and dark nights can give way to dawn. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds, the misdeeds of our body. And we live for we're sons of God. And this is how the Spirit of God leads us. Spirit and action. Point two, Paul gets in his feelings, to quote Drake. That was the pop culture reference I thought was going to be funnier, but that's okay. Um, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness in our spirit that we are children of God. What's on view here is an emotional experience. There's a connection between the spirit and feeling. There's a parallel to this passage in Romans 8 in Galatians chapter 4. And what Paul does there is he, he describes two sendings. God sends the Son to redeem us and procure for us our adoption. You might say this is something that's external, that's objective, that's true of us, whether we feel like it or not. But there's another sending. God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we feel the power and, and we feel the reality of our status as children of God. It's like, picture, you know, picture, uh, picture this. Picture a father walking with his child, holding hands. That child is the son of the father, right? That is his status. Now imagine that father picks up that child, hugs him, kisses him, and says, you are my son, I love you. Has the status of that little boy changed? No. But the enjoyment of that status, feeling the, the reality and the power 
of that kind of paternal love, that changed. And that's what Paul is imagining here. The Spirit authenticates in the depths of our being that which Jesus has made true of us. And I want to say just one thing about the feeling that the Spirit generates, and that is that it is passionate. Y'all know, you're very smart, um, onomatopoeia, is that how you say that word? It's like boom or meow. It's a word that, okay, you guys know what it is. Um, Well, that word for cry is an onomatopoeia, and it refers to the piercing call of a raven. So picture you're shouting for an encore once your favorite band walks off stage, or your six-year-old miraculously catches an outfield pop-up. It's a shout with intense feeling and passion. From the depths of our being, Paul pictures us calling out to God the Father, Abba. Now, contrast that experience with the discrepancy that so often characterizes our Christian life. What do I mean by that? I mean, you know, you could call it head and heart. You could call it a few different things. But, you know, what I imagine is that we hear messages about God's goodness, God's kindness, God's sovereignty, and maybe we even affirm, in some ways, the truth of that. But what has so much more power to shape our daily lives are our disappointments, our brokenness, our struggles, our wounds, and it makes us disappointed or angry or apathetic. Or we hear words about forgiveness and freedom and the glories of grace, and that's great, but if you, if you characterize your life like you're a professional failure, or by all comparative accounts, a terrible parent, then that actually is what has power to shape you. And so what I think Paul is picturing here is this idea of our head saying, or our mind saying, God is good, God is kind, I am safe, and our heart saying, yes, it's true. I am loved, I am free. I'm not alone. The Spirit is dropping the truth of the gospel into our hearts like a large rock into a small pool. It overwhelms us with its emotional force. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul, he pictures the human life in a a fairly bleak way, you might say. It's in chapter 3. He says, no one is righteous, not one Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. Before God, all are held accountable, and every mouth is silenced. Well, here, in Romans chapter 8, that curse is canceled. Human beings receive a voice by the Spirit of God to call out in passion and in prayer, Abba, Father. Spirit in action, spirit in feeling. And what I've been trying to stress here is what's warm and exciting. The spirit makes us feel like kids on the last day of school. But that's not all there is in this text. Because amidst the truths of life and love in the Holy Trinity, Paul throws in the persistence of pain 
As children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. I think this is the, at least practically speaking, the deepest paradox of the whole Christian thing. The spirit of God, which gives life to humankind, finds expression in our weakness as we share in the suffering of our crucified Lord. And this, of course, can take lots of different forms. Maybe we're serving the Lord in very foreign, very difficult places, or maybe we're experiencing the thinly veiled ambivalence that that such faithfulness can engender here at home. Or maybe our lives are characterized by chronic pain, or maybe unexpectedly our spouse left us, or maybe we've been single and we really want to get married. There are lots of different forms. Or maybe, you know, our life is like protected and blessed for a season. But for all of us, for all the children of God, there will be suffering. And I don't think it's the quantity or even the quality that in and of itself occasions our participation in the glory of God. It's our suffering with Christ seeing him in the tempest, apprehending him as light in the darkness, loving him when we are only aware of the roughness of his hand. So what I want to say here on this final point is that the gift of the Spirit is not the pole by which we vault over the limitations of our finite lives. Nor, I don't think the Spirit is a kind of scalpel by which God the Father inflicts pain upon us. God's action in our life is to help us understand the secret of our suffering and be enlarged by it. That when endured and understood in Christ, it can become our advance into the glory of God. That when everything within us wants to tap out, the Spirit makes us brave and strong by being brave and strong beside us. We act, we feel, and we suffer. The Spirit of adoption is connected to all three. I want to end with a quote that I couldn't feel, figure out how to work in, but it, it's so good, I just want to read it anyway. <laughs> it's by uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. She says, there's some very fine teaching available on the Holy Spirit. I hope none of you are satisfied with it. I hope none of you rest until you have felt the Holy Spirit blow through your life, rearranging things, opening things up, and maybe even setting your own head on fire. There is nothing you can do to make it happen, as far as I know, except to pray, come Holy Spirit, every chance you get. If you don't want anything to change in your life, then for heaven's sake, don't pray that. But if you are the type of person who likes to stand out on the porch when there is a storm moving through so you can feel the power that is pushing the trees around, 
and you are probably a good candidate for the Holy Spirit prayer. Let's stand. Our gracious God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you that the Holy Spirit empowers us to put to death the sin that entangles us and that chokes out your work in our lives. We thank you that through the Holy Spirit, we can feel the power of your love for us. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit takes even the dark things of our life, the hard things in our life, and helps us to endure and grow through them. We pray that you would send a fresh wave of that Spirit upon us now. That we would be blessed and enriched and strengthened and enlarged to be forces of of kindness and grace and love and goodness in your world. We love you, our Abba Father. Amen.